Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our reading that will serve as the basis for our sermon message this morning comes from John's Gospel, chapter 3. It is our tradition here at the Way Church to stand for the reading of the gospel, to give respect and glory to the words and the work of Jesus. But this morning, I want to ask you to take a seat. And here's why. Uh, This morning, we are not going to read the gospel lesson before the sermon message. We're actually going to read it throughout the sermon message and then read it in its entirety afterwards. Uh, this Sunday, we're going to sermon message first, then the sermon uh, scripture lesson. And here's why. Here's why. It's because what we have in John chapter 3 is a wonderful chapter of God's Word that contains perhaps one of the most famous passages in all scripture, John chapter 3, verse 16. And so what we're going to do is slow down and walk through this wonderful section of God's word, almost verse by verse, and do that in order to see anew the gift that God gives and receive anew the wonderful gift that God gives to us here in his word, the gift of his son. So with that, let's begin with a prayer. Lord, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John chapter 3 begins this way. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Smart people do smart things. And you know that because you're smart people. Nicodemus was a smart person too. Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees. And you probably have heard about Pharisees and Sadducees before. You hear about them, you read about them in the Bible. You know them to be some of the religious elite in Jesus' day. But perhaps what you didn't know is that they weren't only a religious group, Pharisees and Sadducees, They were a political group of sorts. And very much like you might think of our political parties today, Pharisees and Sadducees represented different people's groups, and they also formed together what you might think of like Congress, a council called the Sanhedrin. And on the Sanhedrin, there were specific people who were elected to very important positions. You might think like the Speaker of the House. And one such person was a group from what's called the high priests. Now, the great high priests were two different groups, and they're often confused because on one hand, you had the high priests who were the religious functioning people who offered up the sacrifices. Then you also had the chief priests. And Nicodemus wasn't just a ruler of the Jews. He was one of the chief priests. Nicodemus wasn't just a ruler. He was like the ruler of the Jewish people right after the high priests themselves. And it's Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was a smart man. To be a high 
priest, chief priest, you had to be a smart person. At the age of three, he learned his ABCs from studying the book of Leviticus. By the age of five, he knew all of the Torah, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and he didn't just know them, he had them memorized. Many commentators believe that in order to be a chief priest, you then had to have the entire Old Testament Bible memorized. Oh yeah, Nicodemus was a smart man. But don't let his education of memorization leave you with intimidation. You're every bit as smart as Nicodemus. If there's someone in God's gospel that we can relate to, oh, it's Nicodemus. Because you're smart people. I mean, some of you will say, I'm not that smart, but no, no, no. Let's step back and think about this. Our collective knowledge is great. Now, some of you have been blessed with a formal education that I'm sure you're very proud of, but even if you haven't gone to extensive formal schooling, we live in an age of wonderful amounts of information. You and I have access to unprecedented amounts of knowledge and information compared to any other period of history ever there was. It is often referred to as the information age. We're smart people. I mean, just collectively think about humankind's knowledge. We know so much about science and medicine. They walk through any hospital wing in America, and you'll be impressed to see the diseases, the ailments, and the cures that are able to be offered under God's grace. We know so much about mathematics and physics, and you think about all the technological innovations that are constantly coming out, and at a very rapid pace. There are inventions taking place technologically that just a generation ago, people couldn't imagine. No, we are smart people, collectively, individually, and if ever, if ever you don't know something, oh, you smart people know exactly what to do. You have a smartphone to help you out with that. Nicodemus was smart. You and I are smart. And here what we see is a smart person do a smart thing. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He was smart enough to avoid the crowds. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus begins his conversation with Jesus in a way typical of smart people. They point out things that they know. Jesus, here's what we know. We know that you do some pretty amazing things. And we also know that <laughs> those things couldn't be done unless God was with you. Nicodemus has been watching Jesus. He's been doing what smart people do, pay attention, recognize when, when something is out of the ordinary, when something is extraordinary. This is only John chapter three. The only miracle that John's gospel records to this point is Jesus changing water into wine. But we know that John, the evangelist, he has written, he said, there are so much things that Jesus did. I couldn't record them all in this book. And Nicodemus saw him. Nicodemus did what smart people do. 
And he went to go gather more information. That's what Nicodemus does. But already here, Nicodemus begins to show that while he's smart, he doesn't know everything. He calls Jesus rabbi, and he probably thought that he was flattering him, giving him a really complimentary title. (laughs) You're a teacher. You must be. He also thought, hey, there's no way you could do these things unless you're from God. God is with you. But he shows what he doesn't know is that this just isn't some rabbi. This is wisdom incarnate. This is the word made of flesh here in his presence. This isn't just someone from God. This is God. Nicodemus thought that he was coming to Jesus to get something he wanted, some more information. But Jesus is about to give him something he truly needs. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Perhaps Nicodemus came to him thinking, okay, he's going to tell me how he does these things. He's going to at least tell me about who he is. He's going to reveal his full identity, what's going on here to him. But we don't know. We don't know what Nicodemus was expecting to hear from Jesus. But we can venture to guess that it wasn't this. Jesus turns to this very smart man, and the first thing he says to him is, listen, listen. That's what he says by truly, truly. He's like, listen to me. Get this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wait a minute. Is Jesus like one of those Bible-believing people that as soon as you talk to him, the very first thing they talk about is being born again? Well, yes, he is. Jesus is going to go on to be very explicitly clear about what it means to be born again, but we should probably take a second to talk about what it does not mean when Jesus is talking about being born again. What does that mean when you hear someone say they're a born-again Christian? Maybe you've heard someone say that or ask you if you've been born again before. If that's ever happened to you, this is is a stereotype. This is generally where people are coming at from this. They are saying that they are a born-again Christian, and it means they're really a Christian. They're really serious about their faith. They are really disciplined with their Christian life of discipleship. They are really Christians. And why do they come to this conclusion that they're born again and this is what it means for their life? Often, it's because of something they've experienced, maybe something bad. They've experienced something where they have been outside of the church. They have been outside of living a Christian life for some time. Or maybe it's something really good, but they've experienced some good in their life. And now, whether good or bad, they've made a decision based on their experience that they are going to rededicate their life to the Lord, that they are going to be reborn. And this usually involves a rebaptism. And then they're really serious about their Christian faith. But here is, here's my point in bringing this up, and the operative word here is decision and experience that I want you to think about, and why Jesus does not mean that when he talks about being born again. 
let me ask you a question. How many of you, talking about your physical birth here, had an experience while you were still just a twinkle in your mother or father's eye and made a decision that now, mom and dad, I would like to be born? How many of you decided that before you were conceived by your mother and father that I am going to I'm going to be born. I would like to be born and be really serious about being your child, mom and dad. Now, I would like to be born. Crickets. And this is Jesus' point. What he's saying in the rest of this chapter and throughout the rest of Scripture is that to be reborn, you need to experience something that comes completely outside of yourself. To be truly reborn, you have to have something happen to you that is completely divorced from your will, your decisions, your volition, or your ideas. I bring up the physical birth analogy because that's immediately where Nicodemus goes. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This very smart man, Nicodemus, was in a very uncomfortable position because he didn't understand something. But ignorance was not Nicodemus' problem. The real problem is revealed in the nature of these questions. Can he be born again? Can can an old man re-enter his mother's womb? No, Nicodemus doesn't have a problem with ignorance. Nicodemus is too smart for his own good. Typically, when you say that about somebody, what it means is that they are overthinking things. And typically, people who overthink things, people who are too smart for their own good, have amassed some knowledge. Maybe it's a lot. Maybe they just think it's a lot. But they know stuff. They know things. And yet, when they're confronted with new information or a new situation... They stick to just one way of thinking. They can't synthesize the information, and they're stuck. They're stuck in their logic of, no, this is the way it is, and I don't understand this. Nicodemus is smart, but he's too smart for his own good. And so it brings up the question, are you too smart for your own good? We've made the case already that you're smart. We're smart people. We live in an age where if you don't know something, you don't have to not know for long. You can go find out things. You know things. You're smart. But are you too smart for your own good when you are confronted with the beautiful, the wonderful, and the simple truths of God's word? Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus records in his word, words repeated in the Old Testament by the prophet Jeremiah, that I forgive you. I don't remember your sins. I say, that sounds pretty good, but what's the catch? No No one just forgets everything. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can't. We say, (laughs) 
I know, I know where you're going with that, Jesus, but I have some aptitudes and capabilities myself. I can still do things even if I'm not remaining in you. No, no, no. Jesus goes on. He says, no, no, remain in me and my words, and you will bear much fruit. We say, no, I'm not going to just sit here in your words. I mean, I'll casually know them, but remain in your words? No. Romans chapter 8, God says, I love you. That's a summarization of the whole chapter. He says, I love you. And then at the very end, he says, nothing in all creation can separate you from my love. God, I know you know everything, so I don't need to remind you that, yeah, I've been separated from your love. Yeah, it's felt pretty distant, you and your love. God says in Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered together around my word, there I am, Jesus says, with you in a special way because I'm omnipresent, I'm all over, all the time, anywhere. But when you gather around my word, I'm there with you. We say, well, Jesus, I, kn- I know you want to make worship a big deal, but I mean, is it really that significant? Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood, which is given for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. I was like, ah, <laughs> I don't get it. Can it really be? Jesus says, Here, in the waters of baptism, no matter your age, no matter your intellectual capability or capacity, here in the waters of baptism, I unite you with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wash you clean of all of your sins, and I unite you together with my family for once and all, and I clothe you with my righteousness. I don't understand. Nicodemus was smart. You're smart. Are you too smart for your own good? Well, the good news is that to people who are pretty smart, Jesus comes with some good news, really the greatest news of what he has to give us. He has to give us the thing, the gift that meets our greatest need. It is rebirth. Jesus answered, he said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water, of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Are you too smart for your own good? If you're taking notes in your worship guide, here's our first fill in the blank. We're going to have four re-words, four words. Our greatest need is rebirth. Too smart for your own good? God gives us the gift of rebirth, and he unpacks for us what it is. He says, truly, unless you are born again of water and the Spirit, You can't go to heaven. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water, God's gifts of baptism, is connected to his spirit. He has promised where his word and his water meet at the fountain in the waters of your baptism, there you are, born again. And this is not some just little slap a Band-Aid on it and call it good. No, God gives you a new birth, a new life in Christ, clothed with his righteousness. And this is not about you, he says. This isn't a flesh thing. 
Because flesh gives birth to flesh. Things that you do, do not do this. This is a spirit thing. Spirit gives birth to spirit. He goes on to Nicodemus and he says, don't be surprised that, I, that I'm saying this. Don't be surprised. Let me give you an example. The wind, you can't see it. You don't know where it comes from and you can't track it. You can't run after it. You can't find it. So also, this isn't about you. This doesn't come from you and what you're able to track or do. This is a spiritual thing. It is the spirit. So it is with the spirit of God. It's the same of what Jesus said, God's word said in Romans chapter four, that faith is a gift. Now, wages, that is an obligation. When you do work, you expect to get paid. But that is not how the Spirit works. Faith is a gift. It is something that God gives completely and freely of his own love. And that is why God is in the business of making dead things alive. We read the end of Romans chapter four before, that Abraham is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. God gives light to our life to our dead bodies that are dead in sin, and he gives new birth, new life to us. Rebirth through God's waters of baptism. Here's the good news. But Nicodemus did a really smart thing after this. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? And after this, Nicodemus doesn't talk. Nicodemus doesn't offer up any more questions. And it's like Jesus said, okay, I'm just going to give it to you straight now. And he does. After talking about rebirth, Jesus then goes in to answer with some of the plainest, most beautiful words in Scripture. He, he first starts with a lesson that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. He said, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you're not going to just ascend to the heights of heaven and all of a sudden think you can just jump over step one and two to understand these things and you're just going to pluck out all this great understanding if you don't even understand what I'm telling you here, the basics, the restart, the rebirth. He goes, I'm, I am the son of man coming down to tell you this. And here's what, he, here's what he gives us next. Our next fill in the blank. Too smart for your own good? Our greatest need is rebirth, a rebirth that leads to a reorientation. Here's what Jesus says to the very smart man, Nicodemus. He points him back to an Old Testament story, and he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Remember why Nicodemus came to Jesus? He, he was obsessed with signs. He was really interested in the signs that Jesus had done. And so you know what Jesus does? He says, I'm going to give you one sign, one sign to end all other signs. Remember Moses. 
Remember how God's people in Israelite, Israel, they had been wandering around the desert at this point for several years, and yet the same song, second verse and third verse and on continued, where when things got bad, they would complain. They'd go, oh, why'd you bring us out into this desert? And so one time, God sent snakes, snakes to bite the Israelites. And what happened, then Israel, Israelites turned back to God, and they say, oh, Lord, save us. We're going to die from these venomous snakes. And so what does Moses do? He puts a snake at the direction of God, a bronze sculpted snake on a pole lifted up in the air. And how do you get healed? Not by doing a thing, but by seeing a thing. Simply seeing that snake up on a pole is what caused them to be healed. And what does Jesus' own words say about this? Just like that, the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He says, let me, let me give it to you really, really simply. Nicodemus, this is how it's going to be. Just look at me. Look at me. I'm going to be lifted up, and you're going to have eternal life. This is a reorientation. This is a change in his focus. In other words, he's saying to Nicodemus, stop looking in yourself. Stop being bent in and turned inwards about you and your experience and the things that you do and all of the laws that you follow as a Pharisee and think that that somehow makes you righteous with God. Just look up. Just look up at that man, at that man upon the cross. Reorient your eyes of faith and see this gift and receive this gift of me. At this point, Jesus, the rabbi, the master teacher, he's on a roll. He keeps giving out this simple message of the beautiful good news gospel. He says it in this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You're pretty smart. We're a pretty smart group of people. We know things. And I'm not belittling the fact that it is a really great blessing to live in a time and place where we have access to so much knowledge, so much learning, and so much understanding. But at such a time as this, it's important to ask the question, do we get too smart for our own good? And it's important to step back and see that there is nothing smarter than setting your eyes, eyes of faith, on this simple truth, that God so loved the world, that whoever believes, Catch the all-inclusives. Whoever believes, they're not going to die, but they're going to have life in Christ. Catch the all-inclusives. At the very beginning, Jesus said, no one can be in heaven unless they're born again. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But whoever believes in him shall not perish. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is all-inclusive. This is for everybody. Just see, just believe, look up. And here's this. Here's a smart thing. You can't have verse 17 without verse 16 and vice versa. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is a different way of stating our greatest need. It's not just rebirth into some ethereal existence. It's rebirth into redemption. Our greatest need is 
redemption. It is this, that your God so loved you that he paid a price you cannot pay, a perfect life, a completely holy existence, keeping every law perfectly. He did that for you so that you wouldn't die the death that we deserved, eternal damnation, separation from Christ Jesus. He gave us his life in order to redeem us or buy us back. And it cost him. It cost him greatly. It cost him his own life. And he didn't do this just for himself. He didn't need it. He already had life in Christ, but he did it for you. So that is why he came. So that you're not condemned. You don't stand before a holy God as condemned, but you stand before him as a beloved child of God. It's a smart thing to include verse 17 with verse 16, but that's where most people stop. But we're smart people, so we're going to keep reading to the end. God's word says this. Jesus continues, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the life because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's why it's smart to read to the end of this chapter or at least verse 21 of Jesus' words here. It's because it's really easy that maybe if you read just verses 16 and 17, you believe this wrong idea, this wrong idea called universalism, that, well, whoever believes or just whoever is saved and anyone can just keep on doing whatever they want to do. They can keep on living in darkness. They can keep on living in sin. And God said, whoever, this is for the whole world that he died, they're all saved. You might believe that. But then you read and you see this is the judgment, that some people love the darkness, they don't believe, and there is judgment for them. But maybe because you're smart people, you don't jump to that one. But maybe, maybe you jump to this idea, that without reading to the end, you think that God so loves you that now we just sit here and we wait. Now we just sit here and we wait for heaven. Well, what verse 21 and all the verses in this chapter point to is that our redemption, it leads to a reordering of our lives, a reordering of our lives and, and what we do. God's word says this, whoever does what is true, whoever does truth, lives in the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The beautiful thing about our redemption is that it completely reorders the way we live. And actually, it's not us who's living anymore. It is God in you. This is Galatians 2, that it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. What the good news of our redemption does, what the good news of Christ Jesus on the cross for you, see and believe, whoever believes has eternal life does, is it reorders our lives. Now we do good. And it's not us who do, does the good. It is God carrying it out in us. I'd like to think that Nicodemus, who is pretty smart, 
listen to the end. I said before, we don't hear any more from Nicodemus in John chapter three, but you do know we hear from Nicodemus two more times in John's gospel. In chapter seven, there was a crowd that was getting pretty enamored with Jesus, and so some guards ran off to the Sanhedrin, the, the, the high priest, the chief priest, and they said, hey guys, people are believing Jesus. And the, the chief, chief priest, they say, guys, that's dumb. Do we believe in Jesus? No, you shouldn't either. And it's at this point that uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They, that, uh, the other Pharisees, they replied this way, <laughs> are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. I'd like to think that Nicodemus just didn't look into it, but he looked up to it. He looked up to him because the next time we hear Nicodemus is after Jesus died. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. The good news about our redemption is that it reorders our lives. I don't know about you, but I can barely lift 75 pounds, and I'm not an old man like a chief priest. Just stop. He's carrying 75 pounds to anoint the body of his Savior. People have often done the math to try to figure out why he was using 75 pounds because nobody used that amount to even, even anoint and prepare for burial some of the really, really important people like the high priest Gamaliel. He didn't even get half of that. They come up with some pretty big numbers, like maybe he spent anywhere upwards of like $100,000 to $150,000 of today's money to anoint Jesus, but that doesn't really matter. What does is this, he looked up. His life was reordered by his redemption. And so he took Jesus' body down, the two of them, wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And then garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I'd like to think as Nicodemus took Jesus' body down from the cross, and wrapped it in the spices that he provided. Those words that Jesus spoke that night in John chapter three were ringing in his ears. I'd like to think that he, he get it. He got it for the first time that he, he just looked. He looked up and he, and he saw this death and he realized that everything from all the scriptures he had ever memorized about a lamb being led, to the slaughters as though a sheep before a shearers was silent. This was it. This was, this was the Messiah. I'd like to think that he finally understood all of it. And, 
And he just knew that this death would not end here, but would result in a resurrection in three days. Because Jesus promised that. Jesus said that. I'd like to think that he was smart enough to get that. But God's word doesn't tell us. Nicodemus isn't here. (laughs) But you are. You smart people are. And we get to see it. We get to see God's word from beginning to end and by the Holy Spirit that is in you through the washing of water and the word, you've been reborn. You've been reborn through the waters of your baptism into new life with Christ. You have received a reorientation. Your life, it's no longer about looking inward at your works, your ability to keep the law and how you feel or what you decide, but it's about looking and seeing up on the cross your redemption, your savior, your God who so loved you that he sent his son. And that's why our lives have been reordered. What a gift. Let's praise him for that. Would you please stand for a reading of the gospel? This is John chapter three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But 
Whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ.